Welcome. Thanks for joining us on our new podcast, Highlight Life. Highlight Life is a podcast exploring the intersection of cannabis and wellness. We're two best friends from Brooklyn on a quest for a better, less stressed life. Taking an honest, sometimes irreverent look at weed, CBD, and wellness. I'm Kirsten. When I was a little girl, I wanted to be three things when I grew up. An astronaut, an actor, and a marine biologist which got canned as soon as I realized that didn't equal swimming with dolphins. So obviously, I ended up working in fashion. But the point is, I wanted to explore as far in and out as humanly possible. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm a music-obsessed vegan who loves to work hard, play hard. I was an overweight teen in Virginia listening to metal and hardcore all day and just feeling shitty. Wanting to feel better led me to becoming vegetarian. I first tried cannabis with a Rasta roommate I lived with in the East Village. And that was the beginning of my quest to learn more about and use natural plants and healing practices. Today we are speaking with Dr. Caroline Hartridge. She is a doctor of osteopathy, general practitioner trained in whole foods, plant-based medicine. In part one of our conversation, we talked to Dr. Caroline about how the death of her ego led her to becoming a cannabis doctor. She also dives into how osteopathy is evidence-based medicine, which sees humans as mind, body, and spirit, self-healing entities, and reasonable treatment takes all of this into consideration. Hello. Hi. Hello. Welcome, Dr. Caroline. Dr. Caroline's in the house today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we're going to dive right in. We're not going (laughs) to mince words because we want to get right to the goods. Um, You have come up with a line of products, CBD. And we have some. Can you talk us through it? We do. So you have in your hands EAT, which is a cacao-based CBD isolate product. And the cacao uh, comes from Costa Rica, and we can get more into that. But it also has a little bit of chili powder or cayenne in it uh, for some vasodilation and a little bit of pink Himalayan salt. Uh, All Um, the things. And then some sunflower lecithin for stabilization. But it is um, oil-free. And it has um, a little bit of coconut nectar. I don't know why I was spacing on it. So it's easier with the uh, to just tell you the story of it. But um, I would develop these for my diabetic patients. So oh. coconut nectar is really low glycemic index, which is why we use it. And then there's no oil in them. I was telling nice. you earlier that they used to melt. We couldn't ship them. It was a whole mm. big problem. And then philosophically, I just didn't want to have oil in them. Yeah. So it's fermented cacao from Costa Rica. The uh, coconut nectar, a little bit of cayenne, some pink Himalayan salt, and then 30 milligrams of CBD isolate. That's amazing. So So you put it in your mouth, and then you're going to let it melt in your mouth. You're not going to chew it and swallow it, and that's because the isolate will go into your buccal mucous membrane. So it's going to get absorbed into your bloodstream in your mouth. Amazing. When when do you recommend people take these? So I recommend it either in the morning or in the evening on an empty stomach. And because the CBD uh, works with your endocannabinoid system in a way that if you need 
to relax. It'll help you relax. If you need a little bit more focus, it can help you do that. It's going to meet you where you are. It's an adaptogenic in that way. So it doesn't matter if you take it in the morning or the evening. Um, and then the cacao has been fermented and not roasted, so there's no caffeine in it. Oh, perfect. Okay. Awesome. Because so, I already had caffeine and I have an empty stomach. There you go. I've had a coffee too, but it's empty, so here we go. Just let it melt. Mm. We don't call them chocolates because it doesn't really taste like chocolate. Mm-mm. It's got like a nice bitterness to it, but in a good way. Like mm-hmm. I really like it. I think of it more as like a nice glass of wine. I try not to eat my own product <laughs> too often, otherwise there would be none. Yeah. Well, the rule, we, rule of the, what is that? The rule of the dealer. At least it's a reminder. <laughs> At least you're like, oh, this is delicious. I made it. So you're checking. You got to check in on it, right? I do quality control because yeah. I we they're now made in a by a chef in a professional kitchen and stuff. When the wow. company first started, it was out of my kitchen in Long Island. Whoa! And I, I love that. I was awesome. I was making them by hand per order. Um, and I, you know, it was very zen and therapeutic to sit there with a measuring cup and pour them out. And we actually do the CBD isolate per truffle. It's measured out. Wow. Um, and it just, after several years, I, it grew enough. When did you start? The business started in 2016. Oh, so you, yeah, like this is, this is interesting because I feel like. There's something in that, that you've been doing it for so long, and so many of the other companies are like, three months ago. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and we've taken time over the past year to kind of be quiet on purpose and regroup and reorganize and come up with a much longer, bigger plan. I just dove into business because I had patients that wanted product. I had no idea what I was doing. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, but that's that's like think the organic way to do it. You're yeah. doing it for the need and the not need. for the market, right. as it were. And like you learned in real time. And I, that's why I was saying it's so interesting that your product has been around for so long because you actually have learned and adapted along the way mm-hmm. where so many yeah. are so new or just labeled. And yeah, I don't know. I think that there's something really well, magic it's not, that. There's a lot of people, it's not really integrity-based. It's like, oh, well, I can make money in this, so I'm going to try to put right. something in there. Right. Certainly, if you had asked me three years ago, when I just really started going into private practice, if I was going to be an entrepreneur or be participating in the <laughs> cannabis space, I would have been like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> me either. <laughs> I know. Um, but I had a patient who had followed me from the hospital to private practice, <clears throat> had graduated from hospice twice and and in that process had really gotten off all of her heavy pain meds wow. and anti-anxiety meds but still had pain and anxiety right right even like it she, didn't disappear just because she stopped taking right. the medication what was she taking nothing she just went from that to nothing yeah <gasps> so she was quality of life was horrible she was really struggling to maintain weight but respiratory status was also such that we didn't want to do any more pain management that would compromise breathing. So she was in a pretty unfortunate situation and back at home and bedridden. Oh, no. And uh, so I would see her once a month to kind of check in and do prescription management. Um, and she was just a riot and had a great sense of humor and was really sharp and um, had an interesting, colorful life and would share those stories with me. So I felt very connected to her and was inspired to do something to try and make her life better. Right. Um, and that January, so I had started practice in October and in January chronic pain came on as an acceptable condition in New York for, um, mm-hmm. medical cannabis. So 
I remember sitting on her bed and saying, listen, it just happened, but I will certify myself this weekend if you're willing to try it. Like, this is something for me professionally that's uncomfortable. I didn't ever think I would become a medical cannabis provider. Oh, wow. So that was was the catalyst. That's the end. Oh, wow. But it's it's such a nice, genuine, like, I just want to help you. I want you to feel better. So I'll do this. And we'll take this journey together and learn together. That's so cool. So we got her a caregiver, and I sat with her while she medicated the first time, and I watched her arms unfurl from contraction and chronic pain. And she started kind of perking up in her stories. Wait, I actually just got goosebumps because it's like... it's It was real. It's why you probably went into this in the first place. Like, I think about little kids saying, I want to be a doctor. They do it for that moment. So she... Uh, and then she asked for an insurance and a cookie. And again, this is like we're trying to keep 90 pounds on this woman. And so it was like, phew, I had an ego death there on her bed wow. because I had this fear of how I was going to be perceived by my colleagues. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd yeah. worked so long and hard to become a physician. I didn't want to be a pot doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially at that time, it has yeah. so yeah. stigmatized. And it just seemed like for all the other things that I was willing to prescribe, this had such a more favorable risk-to-benefit ratio. Did It also improved her appetite, too, Yeah, so, right? yeah. so add that to the list. Right. Can I ask you what age range she was in? So she was 79 when she oh, started okay. her cannabis use. Mm-hmm. Did she have a stigma? Yeah, yeah she, this was, she... And she had kind of, we both had a a weeping moment on her bed because she realized how immediately it was helping her. And she had, she's like, I need to call this boy. He had, she had horses and horse farm and was a a competitive writer. She had a really interesting life. And on the edge of her property, someone had started growing plants. Mm. And she found out and was irate (gasps) and gave one to this boy. And sitting in, you know, 79 now, sitting mm-hmm. in her hospital bed in her living room, Wow. she remembered him and was like, it was medicine. I got so mad at him, and it was medicine. But at the time, she didn't look at it like that, right? It's so wild. So, yeah, this was a big deal for her to try wow. something like this. Yeah. That's huge. And for you to take that journey, too, is yeah. a really big deal. So that's that's how I got into becoming a cannabis provider. Okay, so I was reading your website, and I loved this quote, that I am a firm believer in evidence-based practice. I also like a good story. Mm-hmm. I know you have a good story. Okay. And I would like to dive in a little bit before we get into more like knowledge uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> about you okay. and kind of what brought you to where you're at now. All right. Big question. I know it is. It's like, you know, in the fourth grade, right. I, you know, um, cocktail party, you know, condensed answer would be um, I grew up all all over the world. We traveled a lot because of my dad's work. Um, and through that, um, got to see a lot of different cultures and a lot of different ways of living. Mm-hmm. Were, were your parents doctors? No, my oh. father does international business, outsourcing and accounting. So <clears throat> some projects would be three months, some would be a few years. And when it was up or he's switched either projects or firms, we would also move. So it's almost like the military kids. Totally. Yeah. Uh, so East Coast of the States, um, London. And then in high school, I got really into whitewater slalom kayaking. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, That's saw incredible. That I was like, well, I didn't expect that. Yeah, kind of a, a curveball. <laughs> but I was living in Potomac, Maryland, and my mom and I had done some canoeing on the canals, and then that progressed to kayaking lessons. And nice. I really got into slalom racing. And that allowed me to travel even more. Wow. So I got to spend um, semesters of high school in Southern Africa and South America. Wow. wow. And then traveling with the U.S. junior team in Europe in the summers. Wow. How fun. Yeah. 
I mean, it's also very outdoorsy, right? Mm-hmm. So it like starts to layer in this like economics and travel, Ooh. right? Sorry. And and really respect <laughs> deep respect for the environment. The I environment, remember coming yeah. home from my first semester o- away, and we had lived on a game farm in South Africa. Wow. And we were very aware of water and firewood to heat the shower, and just energy consumption and management. Um, and then going to uh, Victoria Falls and, and seeing Zambia and Zimbabwe, and there being a drought, and then we're here kayaking on this massive river and just seeing the resources being so close and the, the so communities far. So, so can't far. have it. Um, so I remember coming home to London and asking my dad, how much are our bills? What do we spend on water and, and energy and power? And, and like, I just, God, our house is so inefficient. And I, I just felt so guilty taking a bath. And it was just, it really shifted. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's a real resonant chord to, to strike. Within yeah. And you. I was 14. Um, yeah. So that, I think gave me some desire to participate in community work on whatever level. And then through kayaking, I think it really exposed me to physiology at a young age. We'd go to the the Olympic Training Center at Lake Placid and do VO2 max and lactic acid threshold testing. Um, So it's like seeing how the body really works at a deep level and like how you can manipulate how it works. Yeah, because we were on multi-year peak plans. So... In Europe, um, the World Cup Series is pre-Worlds Worlds every other year. And then if you're looking to Olympics, it's you're looking at you know more four-year cycles. So if you are layering your cardiovascular fitness, your strength, your lactic acid, you know, there are different components. There's sprint and twitch muscles. There's long, slow distance. You know, there's so many different things we wanted to try and manage um, that you would want them to peak at different times depending on where you are in your your competition cycle. Oh wow. Oh. So it was it gets very scientific. It did. Yeah. And it's and when you're at a young age and you're learning your body and you're learning your environment yeah. and then suddenly you add in that science layer did this turn on the light bulb? So I did you. Ask. So that's I I took that tangent with you yeah. because I think looking back that was the beginning of my interest in medicine. I don't it wasn't conscious in that moment. Right. right. But I as I look back and do tell the story I it's like, how did you get interested in medicine? Well, I think sports, sports, sports did it. Yeah. Uh, and then I was interested also in in primatology, monkeys. Like that seemed really cool for me to want to study. So I had trouble deciding between primatology and medicine. And when I was looking at colleges, I was looking at places for good pre-med, but also my mom, bless her, had the patients to go around and tour primate centers, you know, like Emory all the way up to... Um, I can't remember the one in the Northeast, but like we went to colleges just so I could look at the primatology center and see if I wanted to study there. Um, and I had set up a gap year where I could study with monkeys for six months and hike along the base of the Himalayas with doctors for six months. And my parents were like, girl, you have traveled more than most people <laughs> for their whole life. Yeah, that's and you were 17. True, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you do, my mother also put a, a bit of reason in there and said uh, I, she had fear that if I did more traveling independently and I did come back to the States and attend university, I would have very little in common with my peers. I already was going to have yeah. a very different experience going into freshman year. But that year, she said, would just make it so much more, perhaps impossible. Right. That's very enlightened of your mom. So To like look that far down. Yeah. That's true. Um, I spent the summer, in be- the compromise was that I spent the summer in between high school and college in a free medical clinic in Peru. 
and that really solidified for me that I wanted to pursue pre-med. So I went to college and declared pre-med and didn't follow through with it. I did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I wrote a studied um, environmental education and did a thesis on the utilities use and consumption of first-year students in Davidson College and other similar schools within the Southeast and argued that there was a mathematical or statistical correlation between how much money they spent on utilities and the number of environmentally themed courses they had because I'd spent enough time at my college to know that nobody cared about anything Unless it affected you. Unless, yeah. unless it hit the bottom line. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a numbers game. Um, so I thought, you know, if there was some relationship there, that was worth arguing. Um, and then built a class around educating the first-year students about that their day-to-day life did affect something outside of their little bubble. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. That's way yeah. more than what I did my first year of college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm feeling like really record store. Oh, I love that though. That's good. That's good. <laughs> it wasn't a bad time. So, uh, I had a lot of fun. So that was the environmental passion through kayaking. And then I think it also introduced me to medicine. Um, I worked in a free medical clinic after I graduated from college. And it was in a town with a sawmill, or sorry, a paper mill and a steel mill. And we saw a lot of upper respiratory yeah, stuff. I was gonna say, the, I did, and yeah. it's stinky. It smells. Paper mills. Nosebleeds. Stink. Weird stuff. Ugh. And and I was also doing some Spanish translation work. So sometimes I could follow the patient the whole way through, even though I didn't have medical skills to be doing that. And uh, I observed that asking patients about either their proximity to the plants or if they had spouses or loved ones that were bringing contaminated clothing home. Like, that just wasn't a conversation we were having, mm-hmm. and it seemed really obvious to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, that was an, an aha moment of environment and medicine are connected, and I can study them. And these two that felt like really choosing a fork in the road for mm-hmm. me, like environment or medicine, and I didn't see how they could come together. And working at this free medical clinic in South Carolina, I had this aha moment and uh, started figuring out how to get into medicine. So I went back to school, finished my pre-meds. Um, started working in a hospital and started applying to medical school. Wow. Um, and then studied public health while I was in medical school. So the master's in public health with the doctor of osteopathy. Is that um, when you had the shift? I saw on your website that you took some time um, to study osteopathy. And what sort of, when did that transition happen for you that you decided to start following that path? Um, so... I think that was the universe sending some pretty strong messages to me. I didn't know about osteopathic medicine before. What is it? Just to be yeah, clear, no, yeah. I great, think that this is super important because when we were talking about it, I have it, patients we like, sitting in my office and, you know, we're an hour into an encounter and one of them goes, you know, we finally get to, have you even seen a DO before? And they're like, no, no. Yeah. What is the difference? So for you all and everybody listening, in the United States, we have two types of fully licensed physicians. So we have allopathic doctors, which are MDs, and mm-hmm. osteopathic doctors, which are DOs, doctors DOs. of osteopathy. You know what? I actually didn't know what that was. I felt so stupid. That's okay. A lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people who like, are even what? sitting in my office don't, okay. don't know. So, okay. um, so it's a good question. Yeah, it's, it's a, a good, good question. question. Okay. And the allopathic, that word, um, means induce a symptom to treat a symptom, which we're really good at. 
in mm-hmm. medicine, right? Like if you've got high blood pressure, I can give you a medication. We can do breathing exercises. We can do a lot of different things to bring your blood pressure down. So you have a symptom and we can kind of counter that symptom. Right. In the 1800s, there was an MD, A.T. Still, what's his name, who uh, lost his wife and children to disease, to infection, and kind of quit medicine, lost faith in it. Mm-hmm. And his father was in the church, so he went back to studying religion, faith, and also studying the natural world. So I like to think of he kind of had this Siddhartha moment sitting under the tree, mm-hmm. where <laughs> observing yeah. the natural world, he noticed that everything around him was self-healing, Right. And it, mm-hmm, yeah. we were genuinely part of the natural world. Why aren't we self-healing? So then he started digging up dead bodies in the 1800s, which was very Whoa. taboo. Wow. That's very, like, yeah. Right? That's not common and yeah. probably no. frowned upon. Like, so which he was, doctor? Yeah. yeah, he was known as the crazy man who would have a femur bone in his pocket walking Whoa. around town. I'm not, this is all, it's a great, there's some really interesting books to talk about a good story. Okay, we're going to put the link in the bio because I actually want to read these because I think that's kind of badass. It's a really, really interesting biography. So um, he was known as this man who had bones and that he knew all about anatomy because of that. So by just touching the bone, he could tell you the attachments, the different vessels running wow. through it. He, You could hand him a bone blindfolded and he could tell you what it was. He was extraordinary knowledge. And this developed a reputation. And so people wanted to come and study with him. And he invited women, which again was... Wow, yeah. this guy is like revolutionary. Wow. <laughs> it's really ahead of the time. <laughs> like, so he ultimately opened up the first osteopathic medical school. Wow. And the pillars of... The stool on which you sit (laughs) of osteopathic medicine, we say, are anatomy, anatomy, anatomy. We spend a lot more time in anatomy um, and see quite a few more specimens than our allopathic uh, colleagues. And then we have tenets that drive us through the curriculum that are a little bit different. So while we do the same curriculum, we take boards, we're, we're kind of doing the same hoop jumping as, again, our allopathic colleagues, we have a different approach to the content. Um, so the tenets of osteopathic medicine are one that you are mind, body, spirit, and that those things cannot be taken apart. I was just, I was just gonna say that because I saw it on your website. And then, and I say for people who are not comfortable talking about spirituality and medicine, um, we can take it straight to energy, and that mm-hmm. your heart is a battery, and the right hand rule of physics says that you've got an electromagnetic field, so it could be mind, body, energy too. Right. So the second one is that structure and function are interrelated. Mm-hmm. Pretty basic. Like like engineering. Yeah. Yep. The third one is that you are a self-healing entity down to the cellular level. And we know this as homeostasis. Homeostasis. Yeah. You know, I also think that psychologically, it's such a nice place to be. If I was a doctor, that's the mindset I would want yeah, to be in at all same. times. Otherwise, it would be really fucking depressing. It's hard. And so the fourth and final one is that reasonable treatment, rational treatment will take the previous three statements into consideration. This is this just seems so obvious. Yeah. So that's a different way of looking at biochemistry or pharmacology or whatever it might right. be. Um, and then we spend extra time in medical school learning how to diagnose and treat with our hands. So part of osteopathic medicine and part of what AT still learned in that structure and function component is that you can use your hands to manipulate the body and put it back into a place where its ideal structure allows ideal function. 
So is that like, so are you manipulating the body through like a massage? So it can, some of it can be gentle, like more lymphatic techniques, if you will. Um, But we also learn, um, so we learn how to diagnose and treat all tissue types, whether that's bone or soft tissue or ligaments or nervous system or fluid and lymphatics. Uh, We learn the cranial sacral mechanisms um, and then even biodynamics, so working more with the energetic field. Um, and these are all techniques that are associated with billable codes uh, that's recognized by insurance companies. So while it might sound more woo-woo or um, alternative, these are evidence-based recognized. modalities mm-hmm. that are recognized um, within conventional medicine. So we learn how to work with all tissue types, and it's anything from HVLA to uh, myofascial release to counterstrain to cranial work. Um, so a lot of different tools in the toolkit. I love everything about that and would like to know know more about all of that. It's interesting. Did you have to shake off some of the woo-woo, like, stigma or stereotype when you were doing it? Or did you feel like as you were learning it or approaching it, you had enough science that people kind of respected everything that you were doing? Do you know what I mean? I do. I think it's all about how you personally feel about it, right? So I really found comfort in knowing the anatomy and the physiology and really being able to explain what I was touching from skin all the way down to the layer of intention. And and I think that understanding your anatomy on that level allows you to speak a common language with someone who's maybe not well-versed or coming from more allopathic training. So in that way, I was able to do osteopathic manipulation in hospital settings with trauma surgeon teams and inpatient medicine teams, and they would let me work even on them as physicians. So I think once you prove that I'm not just doing a massage, yeah, right? right. Like, um, and that there's a bit of intention and knowledge that, that goes with these different techniques and manipulation, It's it doesn't feel woo-woo at all. And if anything, a lot of these allopathic colleagues or mentors or professors are thinking I wish I would have learned that like yeah. once I mean absolutely yeah it does I don't feel like it is I just think that like mm-hmm. sometimes that's like the outside integer- yeah do you think it's language I do like I there's think, like yeah. a language of being able to communicate it right. concisely in a way that people can understand it you know it takes you, that mysticism away I, I've heard about cranial sacral work where the people can like move around your parts is mm-hmm. that sort of like tied to that or is that so we to- learn to work with the cranial mechanism oh. and one thing I love to explain to patients is their cranial mechanism and kind of what it is and what we're doing so we call it your primary respiratory mechanism and it's your cellular metabolism and it's primary because when you are a ball of cells inside your mom you're doing cellular respiration before mm-hmm. you're doing lung respiration mm-hmm. okay so your cellular respiration is your primary respiration breathing is secondary respiration oh wow, oh, wow. okay so that's <laughs> yeah. like Didn't one that. kind of big concept so when your cells get together and form parenchyma or tissue and form into organs, they do their cellular metabolism in harmony at about the same rate. And it causes the organ to move ever so slightly. And we can see this on imaging. Wow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) If if anybody could see us, our minds just exploded. I think both of our mouths were open. Yeah, you just blew our minds. (laughs) So your brain goes through what we call a flexion extension cycle. And we can see this on a functional MRI. It's a small movement, but it it likens to the Bert and Ernie head. <clears throat> so tall, skinny, short, fat. Tall, skinny, short, fat. Okay? Okay. So 
micro motions of that. Imagine that happening in uh-huh. your head. Like okay. a little Burton Ernie accordion. <laughs> totally. In your head. Like tall, skinny, short, fat. Tall, skinny, like short, that. fat. So when your brain goes tall, skinny, short, fat, it moves the cerebral spinal fluid around it, right? Your brain is bathed in fluid. Like a pump. Right. So if you imagine yeah. throwing a pebble into a pond and then there's a ripple effect, uh-huh. so your brain's the pebble and the, the ripple effect is going through your cerebral spinal fluid. And when that ripple pushes up against your dura or your connective tissue, mm-hmm. your fascia, but it's in fascia. your head, so we call yeah. it dura, that ripple effect is felt by the dura. The dura is anchored on your bones. So the wave goes through the dura onto the bones, and then your bones move along their suture lines. So we can feel with our hands, we learn how to feel the tall, skinny, short, fat. Wow. With your hands. With your hands. And so what, when we're doing osteopathic treatment, when I'm doing cranial work, and I started to explain this to children just because it's, you know, they you get it keep, probably yeah, way they, before well, us. They're, they're not filtering as much. Yeah. And I've got to keep them engaged if they're on the table hanging out for 20 minutes with me or, you know, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. like you got to tell them a story. So at the end, they're having quiet moment and I've got my hands on their head and I'm asking, you know, just if they can feel the tall, skinny, short, fat. And to them, it feels like I'm moving my hands, tall, skinny, short, fat. And I'm not moving my hands at all. My hands are totally still. So the motion they're feeling is the fluid wave of their brain. (laughs) Wow. Which is so cool. And that's so incredible. And that is your primary respiratory mechanism. So as that fluid wave is happening, and it's a slower rate than the one at which you breathe, so it might be like 8 to 10 a minute, the fluid wave is felt on the dura. The dura exits the head. It connects, again, at the second vertebral unit in your C-spine via the alar ligament, which translates to angel wing. Mm. (laughs) Love that. And then it goes all the way down your spine. It attaches again at S2 on your sacrum, and then this piece of fascinelle splits and goes down your legs and attaches at your Achilles tendon. So in anatomy lab, it's one contiguous piece of tissue. Uh-huh. Wow. So as your head That's goes... That's what they call it, the sac, right? Right. Like so as you're going tall, skinny, short, fat, and your brain's making that fluid wave, it's bringing your sacrum with it, hence the cranial sacral uh, therapy. So that fluid mm. wave is being felt from cranial... Oh. sacrum from from mm-hmm. tip of spine to top of top head, of head. Mm-hmm. so as you go tall skinny no short fat see. your your sacrum moves in between your hip bones and we call it a nutation or a nodding and that just is driven by the primary respiratory mechanism of the brain wow whoa that's incredible yeah what an amazing that's so amazing so I think once you can break it down and talk to people about it through anatomy, there's nothing woo-woo about it. And you can feel it and we right. can measure it. Right. I mean, it's like you can feel your heartbeat. This is just something a little bit harder to identify. It takes more training. And in our orientation to medical school, they pass around a phone book, which whoever, who still has a phone book? Right? I mean, <laughs> young kids don't even know what they don't even know. know. My daughter saw a, a phone, like a rotary phone and didn't know what it was. What? No way. Oh, no, it's a thing. There was like a joke that like if if you needed to dial somebody in an emergency, you'd be like, how do you use this? Oh, my gosh. No. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, times are changing. Yeah. So uh, orientation, medical school, you got a you got your really, really thin piece of paper for people who don't know what the uh, phone book feels like. (laughs) (laughs) And 
you're the professor, the dean, standing on stage, <clears throat> and he asks us to pull out a piece of hair. And now I'm like, oh, what the fuck did I get myself into? Uh-huh. Talk about some woo-woo. Yeah. yeah. Day one, and you're asking me to pull out my hair. <laughs> yeah. But I do it. And they tell us to put the piece of paper over the hair to see if we can feel it. Oh, wow. And we're like, oh, I don't know. You're like, what's the right answer? D. Right. This is a solid D. I passed the MCAT. <laughs> uh, so he let us know that at the end of our training with them, through really becoming more sensitive in our sense of touch, we would be able to feel a hair through 20 pages of the Wow, that's book. so cool. That's incredible. I want yeah. the skill. This is like some X-Men I know, I want this skill doctor too. shit. And it's we're all capable. And I think for people that have had whatever trauma you know, that they've gone through to lose a sense, we can see greater neuron development around their other senses. Like mm-hmm. there's, if you lose sight, then you get a finer sense of hearing mm-hmm. and touch mm-hmm. and taste. Um, so we do know that there's plasticity there and that you can learn to, to have a finer sense of whatever it might be. Yeah, it just takes practice, right? Mm-hmm. And, and um, some guidance. You are also a Reiki practitioner, right? I am. Is That obviously is connected to that. And Kirsten mm-hmm. is also um, Reiki certified as yeah. well. Yeah, I am. I'm not a master. I took some time off medical school and was able to to go to that level. Um, but that's a lot of the kind of the same? It is. It really yeah. helped me understand cranial in a different way and I think it helps bridge that conversation whether it is more anatomy based Mm -hmm. for the trauma surgeon or if it's really more energy based for you know maybe some more talk therapy work that you're doing with someone and trying to understand their chronic patterns and Mm -hmm. and stress coping mechanisms that's incredible Um, so it can go both ways but it is it's all math it's all energy there's there's nothing woo-woo about any of them. I think that that's also because so many people know about Reiki that maybe that's a good bridge to talking about mm-hmm. what you do in osteopathic So medicine. the biodynamics engaging with that electromagnetic, electromagnetic field we were talking about. So your heart has directional energy running through it, right? There's like a positive charge and a negative charge, if you would think about it. Same as a, a battery. Mm-hmm. And according to the right-hand rule of physics, if there's a charge... Then 90 degrees to that, there's a plane of energy. Okay. So, does, like a field. Yeah. Okay. That there's a charge, there's a field. So, that if you, you can kind of it. imagine your heart in the center of your chest, and then the right hand rule of physics, I, I, I'm real basic. So, I take my thumb and my pointer finger and make an L. Mm-hmm. And that's how I knew which way the direction of the field was going. Like, I would do this in tests in physics. Um, like that? Yep. So, if oh. your thumb is the direction of the charge, then and your finger the points towards the... the field. Oh, okay. That so that's sense? how you get that, like, that's oh, how you right, get right. the okay. field that around orb, your, your aura. Right. So that's the right hand rule of physics and learning how to engage with that energetic field. So to literally palpate it and manipulate it is biodynamics, which is a subset of osteopathic medicine. Oh. So there are some practitioners that only do biodynamic energy. That's their practice. That's like the main part of what they do. And people come from all over to see them. And if you're observing, it's like, and you don't know what's going on. You just think, like, what are we doing for an hour? But I have also, as a student, been in the room <clears throat> observing and energetically observing. And the, my professor would be like, Caroline, you got to back off or you got to focus or that's too much. You know, like, and I, like, 
he can feel me through the patient that he's working on. Oh, wow. And it's all just energy. Is there a way to measure that? Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you measure so in it? So in a clinic environment, not so easy, but in more um, research environments mm-hmm. or a more hospital-based setting, there are certain modalities we can use to actually measure the electromagnetic field. That's so fa- I feel like that's where there's so much room for growth mm-hmm. and yeah. so much room for the average person yeah. to learn a little bit more because it you can't see it. It's you like can't see it, but explaining germs back in the day. But you practiced it and received it, and I imagine you have as well. Um, and whether or not you want to believe in it, you feel things. Yeah. yeah. So Absolutely. It's working. It's yeah. happening. And even if you want to say it's placebo effect, 60% of antidepressants are placebo yes, effect, and they work just fine. You know, yeah. I am a firm believer that as long as I feel like it's working, I It's am, working. Okay. It's working. I yeah. don't care. Yeah. Right? So I think we kind of covered the story. I mean, we covered a lot. Um, <laughs> I knew questions. going into medicine, I knew that I wasn't going to have a traditional practice. I knew that I wasn't going to work in the hospital. Um, I didn't think I wanted to teach. So I actually... Um, ended my residency early and went into private practice. So I quit working oh. at the hospital, which is like it's so, culturally so, so it's counter culture. Very taboo. Um, but I knew that I, I knew what I wanted to do and I didn't mm-hmm. feel like what I was yeah. doing at the hospital was taking me closer no. to what I wanted to do. No, probably farther away from farther away. So um, I went, I got my license um, and went straight into private practice and took a huge leap of faith and was graciously received by my community wow. and, ha- and continue to have a lovely quality of life because of my patients. Oh, amazing. But I feel like there's such a void for it. Like yeah. there's such a need and people are really desiring it and it's just hard to find. I feel and, like and is it a lot of, access. probably there's mm-hmm. a lot of patients who've been through so much that they're on their last leg of what is there left to try mm-hmm. because they've been through all the traditional stuff and it's not working or the pain is worse. I Those mean, are a lot of the people that I end up, yeah. they come in with a file and it's thick yeah. and they're oh. exhausted and exasperated. Yeah. And sometimes they just walk in and cry because because they've been through it. They've, they've been, been through it. They've been through it. And it is mind, body, spirit. Yeah. yeah. You can't take away the emotional tag that this takes a toll on. I think through that process, too, it drains the spirit. And so it actually makes you weaker mm-hmm. with the, the body stuff, yeah. with the physical yeah. pain and the suffering. Yeah. So, and wow. I think being seen can be. It, it can be triggering, it can release a lot, and it yeah. can also be very therapeutic. Some of my patients that have had a more allopathic experience, which by the nature of the system, I think is a little bit more compartmentalized or we rely on subspecialties mm-hmm. and it's harder mm-hmm. to see the whole picture. Um, but it's also really good at doing some things because there's such there's such a breadth of information that you can't know it all. So you really do need you need it yeah um but sometimes it's hard to see the forest through the trees mm-hmm. if you will and by the time they do find me um i can tell their story back to them in a way that makes sense to me mm-hmm. and that does correlate with physiology or an imbalance in their autonomic tone so their fight or flight is way up heavy metals too loud and the classical <laughs> is way too low. So the sympathetics are too high. The parasympathetics are too low. And it's causing adrenal fatigue and their hypothalamus pituitary yeah. adrenal axis is off. 
and it's making them irritable, irritable. and anxious and um, they are jumping because they can't sleep at night and their bowels are off and their libido is horrible and they're like, oh my God, how did you know all that? And it's yeah. like, because this is, it makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I definitely saw You're not crazy. my mother was going through all of that stuff. And so. a lot of... Um, a lot of them have been told they're crazy that they need to be on antidepressants yeah. or well, something. Well, then they like layer that, that on top. Well, my mom was on. on a cocktail of that with the antidepressants. So that's on the top. that's what I get to do for some of them um, is if they want, and again, I'll keep prescribing your antidepressants and statins and stuff. If that's what you tell me you want, right, um, and that's your desired quality of life, then I'm right there with you. But if you come in saying I've been put on this baggie full of pills, it started three years ago. They've just gotten more and more. My quality of life has gotten more and more shit. I don't even know who I am anymore. I'm willing to try anything. It's like, okay, I hear you, and we're going to taper off those, and we're going to do some major lifestyle adjustments. I, I think we're in a good place to do a little check-in okay. and yeah. see how we're feeling after yeah. taking our delicious, you know, CBD cacao moments. And I have to tell you, I'm having a very different experience than I've ever had, Whoa. which is I feel relaxed and focused. I finally understand that because people have been saying, and I'm like, isn't that counterintuitive? Because I feel like I need to feel no. the caffeine <laughs> and up. No, but yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. To actually feel like kind well, of everybody says easy. it, but do you really feel that way? And I feel yeah. very focused. I don't feel <laughs> like I'm going to take a nap. I feel very awake and alert, mm-hmm. but at ease at the same time. Like and I have to tell you, calm. I feel at ease. Definitely. I love it. I love this feeling that I have right now. It's nice. I feel engaged. I felt very present. I didn't space out or tune out at any point, which usually, you know, you do. And 30 milligrams is enough for a daily dose for people. If you're deficient, like we call endocannabinoid deficiency, which is maybe where your adrenals have been really fatigued and you are very stressed out. So maybe your first dosing for a week to a month needs to be 50 to 100 milligrams a day. I was taking a lot. I've been taking a lot. And it depends on your stress level. You got to find that sweet spot. And I have some patients that were deficient and then get back to their baseline. And then 30, 15, 10 milligrams a day, depending on, again, their stress level is enough. So I feel that I feel 30 milligrams like I I feel lovely, too. And and it's a nice like body relaxation, almost like a Epsom salt. Yeah, it's a body relax. My body is at ease, but there's a nice smile. Yeah, and we're focused. Yeah. So I, coffee gives me, I haven't had caffeine probably in two years, but mm-hmm. I remember sweating, jittery, and just kind of like, <gasps> yes. Well, we were saying taking CBD, but coffee kind of takes that kind of stuff balances away. It. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's nice to be alert and awake without that jittery component. Yeah. Caroline's, um, your website is drheartridge.com. Correct. For products, that is... Which D-R-H-H-S.com. Okay. And you have an Insta, too? Insta is Dr. Caroline Hartridge, and you can link to all of it from there. Yeah, so go check out her stuff. It's amazing, and, and, and see what she has to offer. Stay tuned for part two with Dr. Hartridge, where she talks about plants as medicine, self-healing through a plant-based diet, and the role cannabis plays in medicine. Join us on this journey. Let's explore, experiment, and learn together how cannabis with some good old self-care and mindfulness can help us feel good. So let's highlight life in a really positive way that just makes us all better humans. Check out our website, highlightlife.com. Follow us on our Instagram at highlightlife and click subscribe on our podcast to take this wild ride with us. Big thanks to Gary's Electric Studio in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and to Rytan on Thrill Jockey Records for the music.